Welcome back to another episode of the Readiness Report at a, at a new time. It's this is the middle of Readiness Report. <laughs> yeah, 2 p.m. So normally it's at 8 p.m. as you guys know, Eastern Standard Time, and and we will generally have a few drinks. We have dinner before uh, together here after working out at the Red Coin Gym. We come have burgers. Yep. Uh, you have the uh, the Hoss Burger. Johnny has the Grand Dada Burger. I have the the, the fried chicken is my favorite one. So wait, hot dogs. Fried Oreos, sometimes. fried Oreos occasionally, and several vodkas. Uh, so this is a very different uh, <laughs> midday sober. So this is our sober, stressed out readiness report. We got other, all kinds of other shit we should be doing. So uh, it is a different kind of show. But I'm interested to see the following. How so does it mean like we it? play video games after still? We can. I mean, uh, we can still play video games. Maybe delayed a little bit. But uh, won't thank be as you good guys for sober. Yeah, it won't be as good. You're right. Um, so we appreciate you guys tuning in. We want to see how people like it uh, midday also. It's kind of almost like an experiment. A little bit. Yeah, tonight we had stuff to do, and uh, the president comes on tonight. It's uh, a bigger part of it. At Eastern Standard Time uh, also. So we went right on with the president. So we had a few reasons uh, to, to switch it. And it'll be interesting to see how the 15th show does and how people react to having us midday. Let me remind everybody, if you do like the show, you, you want to support us, and you're watching live, please hit the share button and the like button on Facebook. By hitting the share button and the like button, you're letting Facebook know that this is good content and should show it to more people. It messes with their algorithm. Ah. Yeah, yeah, we want that. We want that. And if you're listening on uh, iTunes or on Stitcher or all these other podcast places, thank you very much. Please tell everybody. That's actually where we're getting most of the downloads now is uh, through the actual podcast streams, which is, which is what we're hoping. You know, yeah, that was the point initially, right? Digital uh, podcast. Digital podcast. We use the content in as many ways as possible. And this week's guest, we have on my very good friend, Mel Chancy. I can't wait to bring on after the commercial break. We're going to tell you all about Mel. Mel's a very interesting, eventful life and uh, has truly made a huge change in, in where he was going to where he's going now. Uh, so I can't wait to tell you guys and have Mel tell you all about it. And if you guys have questions for Mel, you can text Mel at 561-473-4673. You show that at the bottom, Johnny? Yeah, so that's actually not actually Mel's phone number. That's just the number to text in for the question. You yeah. should put Mel's phone number. Yeah, we should, Mel would have been really surprised if I put <laughs> his number. Like, what the like... hell? <laughs> so let's go to the news. And uh, first on our list is TikTok sues the Trump administration. So we've covered TikTok before. Yeah, a couple we talked, times. Yeah, we've talked about the fact that uh, I think the first time we talked about like why is why is this exciting to people? Yeah, and that's what gave the advice of get your name on TikTok. Yep. And yep, that was the first one. And then it got we got obviously this this drama that ensued with TikTok. TikTok being a Chinese company um, and being owned by it's called ByteDance, who they're yeah. owned by in China, and uh, and that became a really big deal because Donald Trump said uh, that it was a security, a national security concern. Yeah, because they 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 share data, and the, the part of it was to what that potentially they could access the microphones and cameras on people's phones mm -hmm. because they had access to the phones. Which, not being racist, but it probably is a a concern with China just because of yeah, you know, there's always been issues with data breaches, and oh, yeah. they really have no no. Well, there's no question about it. There's no question that spying is going on in America uh, via China. I mean, they're they're definitely doing that. Uh, no question about it. I mean, they just closed down. We talked about this in a prior episode. They closed down the consulate in Houston, yep. and that's like never ever happened. So or they yeah. shredding documents when they yeah, were they're shredding around. documents when they were uh, when they were supposed to be leaving, and they had to actually go in and forcibly get them out of there. So that doesn't happen. You don't do that casually. You know, it's not done for no reason. Obviously, we're not going to be read in on all the reasons things are being done because it's all secret, right? But they don't just do it willy-nilly. There's a reason for that. And so for him to say that he's concerned enough, it's not him personally. So people may not like Donald Trump. I get that if you don't like somebody, anything they say, 
you can look at and, and poke holes in, but he's got security advisors and he has a, a whole plethora of very smart people that are in his intelligence arm that are telling him this. It's not him coming up with these ideas on his own. Somebody is telling him that there's a reason to be worried. And just so people know that if you think, oh, TikTok's no big deal or this is bullshit, the United States military, they don't no longer allow their soldiers to have TikTok on their phone. All the senators and the, and the House members don't are not allowed to have TikTok on their phone. All the different agency guys, whether it's CIA, NSA, etc., they can't have TikTok. So why would you do that if it if it doesn't matter if it's a knock if it's innocuous and it doesn't have anything? No, there's definitely something behind it. Someone's probably uncovered something about it, and it just it's not out yet. So now TikTok is firing back because uh, they're in the process right now. It sounds like of, of fi figuring out a partner to purchase them, right? And there's yep. been talk about Microsoft, a bunch of other people interested. But in the meantime, they're going to sue the Trump administration, saying that they didn't have due process, that they have tried to prove to the United States government that um, that they weren't doing this, which is just obviously like, come on, like, yeah, they said they didn't do it. They're not doing it. <laughs> well, what else are they going to say? What else are they going to say? Coronavirus well, didn't we, come from here. Yeah, we, yeah, with coronavirus, <laughs> didn't, coronavirus didn't come from here. Yeah, coronavirus didn't come from here, and we're not looking, we're at, not your, looking at anything. At your years. cameras while you're in the bathroom. <laughs> Maybe we are. <laughs> so uh um, Johnny. Yeah, Johnny man. That, that's a whole other show. It's a whole other show, Johnny. It's a whole other channel. Yeah. So um that is one of the uh the big things that they're really they're that they're trying to address. No due process, the fact that they are not really doing it. And in any way, they they're trying to have some kind of recourse because like, you know, ultimately what what else, what else can they do? Well know? that's I mean, obviously they're probably yeah, suing as well, because if they've got some deal on the table, they don't want that to be stopped. Yeah, well, that's got to be so. And that's one of the things that they said that I, in, in the whole thing that I was reading is talking about um, if somebody purchases them, will that liability continue on to the next party? Because like, well, is is that is it, you know, still a liability for somebody purchasing? Them? Wasn't that part of the prior narrative, though, that Trump was OK with it if it got sold to a U.S. Right, based company? Right. Yes. That being said, though, but the things if they, more stuff is uncovered or continuing uh concerns does that affect the new company like how do you know do you get the the old baggage of the old company when you purchase the new imagine that indemnification that's a, that purchases <laughs> i'm sure it's like 30 billion dollars plus oh they would probably so. hold oh, 10 yeah. billion in escrow just in case there's problems yeah so another story that we keep following up on is kanye west kanye west running for president of the united states uh against his uh, good friend donald trump and uh, joe biden and so is, now he's friends with Sleepy Joe. No, no, he's not okay. friends with Sleepy Joe. He doesn't like Sleepy Joe. He likes he likes Trump, but uh, or he did. I don't know. Who knows? Oh, they're still buddies. I'm yeah, sure. I'm sure. Well, that's kind of one of the things the questions that that we have is so he is officially qualified now for Tennessee. All you need to run for president and be on the ballot in Tennessee is 275 signatures. I found that interesting. Like that seems like a very low barrier to entry. You want us to get you in for the next time? Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I get 275 uh, signatures. That's I, for sure. I don't think it's that be that tough. No. So I wonder how many other people will be on the ballot on these ballots because you know obviously there's other party ballots. We talked about. I think we we took about Joe Jordan Jorgensen. Yeah, she's people. actually probably one of the best candidates out there. Yeah, but. she's she's good. She's good. Uh, but that's one of the things when you run for independent party. Kanye's uh, party is called the Birthday Party. Uh, he made it up. I like the birthday, uh, party. birthday party. It's creative. Um, Wear birthday yeah. suits. And... There you go. So uh, Kanye came up with this this thing. Whenever you're a third party candidate, the chances of winning are like almost zero. Yeah. Um, it, just it, ha it hasn't ever happened. The no. only time it's really affected politics was Ross Perot taking right. votes win, away but, from. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's really why they put him forward, right? So, was... he, and that's exactly what I was going to say with with old Kanye here. If Kanye goes to some of these swing states that were really close, or that Trump lost in, if he can get some of the, if Kanye can get some of the uh, left-wing voters to vote for him and pull it off of Joe Biden, maybe he can make a difference. And that's one of the things that 
you know, if you believe Kanye is a, not a lunatic, you know, uh, and not just a man on the edge of, uh, you know, destruction, there is definitely an argument to be made that, that maybe that's his whole idea. He loves Donald. He wants him to win. Yep. This is something he could potentially do that could legitimately pull voters away. I could definitely see uh, young people saying, I hate Trump. Sleepy Biden's terrible. This guy, at least, he's he's interesting, you know? It's like he's not a politician. Yeah, and honestly, you know, that's what you'll get is you get a young, uneducated voter that just says, that doesn't realize how important a vote is, like what you're actually doing with yeah. it. And just going, like, yep, Kanye, Kanye. Yeah. Um, and it could be, again, could be just a political pick. Like in basketball, you're just making this move to let someone else slide like, over definitely here. Definitely like, a, this would be a good Roger Stone question. Like, oh, no, that was one of my angles. Oh, was it, did we get to Roger Stone? About no, we never got any questions yeah, out of Roger Stone just told us. We didn't get a chance to talk to him. <laughs> I, need, I need to get, I, I forgot this. I heard about back. his suit he was supposedly wearing. That was yes, so nice. It was a wonderful suit. Um, but, uh, <laughs> But anyway, so right now uh, he's qualified. Uh, Kanye's in Arkansas, Colorado, Idaho, Oklahoma, Utah, and of course not Tennessee. Interesting. He's not even in his home state of Wyoming right now. No, that's Illinois, that, is, but... that is interesting. I wonder if he's, it, it may be still like, I don't know how it works with that. There may be still time to qualify. Gotcha. You know? I, mean, I know that the states are, there are certain time limits for each one of them. Like he, he like just hit one of them. Well, I think it was Colorado or, or was it New or Jersey? Or... One of them, the early ones, yeah, he had like almost missed the deadline yeah, yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So next on our list, I'm going to let you take this story because I, I do love Apple, but I don't know a whole shitload about Fortnite, and you do. I do. I You're a very you're a connoisseur of, of Fortnite. I, I, so I've known a lot about Fortnite from the beginning because the company Epic that made Fortnite, they really built it around their real engine, which is like their, their engine to run the gaming. Um, they're the ones that came out with Gears of War. Those are one of my favorite games. So I remember reading about Fortnite forever, and it really all it was before was this building – and then you kept, uh, essentially kept off these aliens and zombies. Mm -hmm. Game was a flop, didn't go anywhere. They added that battle royale mode and now it's like the most successful games. Cause the thing why it's successful, it's so damn easy to spend money in it. <laughs> because literally there's, you buy these things called V-Bucks and there'll be a new skin that you like. Like there's a John Wick one that even to now, I haven't played in forever. If that fucking thing comes up again, I'm going in and buying it because I want to play as John Wick. Um, <laughs> but you can buy... Can you buy weapons and stuff? Uh, skins for your weapons. You can't buy weapons. You have to find them. Um, can you buy... Can you, can you, like, spend money to be better at the game or no? Uh, can you, you can spend money to level up. Okay. So you can, yeah. If you don't want to have to wait, you can spend money to level up. Um, what does leveling up do for you? Uh, just put you in... So that's the problem with buying your way into levels. It maybe gives you more free stuff. But when you play against people openly, based on your level, it puts you in games with people who are higher levels. Oh, so you're going to get smashed if you're a new guy. You can screw yourself by buying levels. So um, long and short, it's the, they found a new way to get money out of gamers because the game's free, but everything else you pay for. You pay for the battle pass. You pay for skins. You pay for the dance moves. People spend a lot of money on dance moves. <laughs> so when you kill someone, you can stand over them and dance. If somebody's like shit on their grave, more or less, um, it's that type of move. And so what was cool about it, like when I was playing with Jackson, the whole family was playing, like Trenton, Aaron, me, and then all of Jackson's cousins were playing. But what you notice on the screen is one person's playing from an iPhone, one person's playing from an Xbox, one from a PC. And it was really the first cross-platform gaming where it didn't matter what you're playing on, you just played against each other, where now... Epic and Apple are in the biggest pissing match over because Epic added their own form of payment to collect money for the V-Bucks. Yeah. And Apple more or less is saying, well, no, unless it's Apple Pay on an iOS device, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. And now it's, 
a very massive battle. <laughs> so um, now they're coming out with a new chapter of Fortnite because what you do is you have these seasons and then chapters. So the next one's coming up and essentially Epic said, well, you know, you can still play Fortnite, but no longer are we going to provide updates to iOS devices. Wow. So whatever chapter and season you're at currently, time has stopped for you if you're going to play an iOS device. Wow. So is it still fun though? Are you still able to, or when it's not updated, it's like you're um, it's no longer interesting. It's still the same game. It's fun, but you know, there'll be these times where like there's different levels of weapons, right? From common to legendary weapons. So there's like five levels of weapons. You can't uh, buy skins though. You can't change buy anything, right? Yeah. So essentially you'd be stuck in time. You'd just be able to play, you know, so the playing element's fun. I mean, especially like the open world, the team rumble, stuff like that. But then when they have these unique games where it's all, everybody has legendary weapons. So it's a free for all. You gotta be good because otherwise you're gonna get slaughtered. I don't think you'd be able to do that kind of stuff anymore. Um, yeah, all the new DLC wouldn't be available to so you. Basically Apple just said like, hey, if you don't use our processor, you're done. And they're like, where are you going around you? And now we it's just support right. your devices. Now they're, now, they're, now they're no longer able to be used. Yep. And so how do you think this is gonna shake out? You think they'll, uh, It'll work out some resolution. I think like so. There's to, too right? much money on the line for both sides. And that's obviously... Because that's really what it comes down to, right? They could make a deal and say... Because I know Apple takes like 20% of the money or something, mm -hmm. right? So they so. could say, listen, for you guys, we'll do 10%. Come on back, you know? Yeah, and I think that's what it's going to come down to is that... You're losing so much money. How can you... What's I mean, you're, you're, they're both at a standstill for both of them. Yeah, and if you got people who were playing an iOS device and now they're just like, well, I'm still going to keep playing, but I'm going to switch. Now Apple loses out, so... They'll come to some agreement. I don't see it not happening. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, uh, I hope so because I know Asher and Jackson both love the game. Oh, Asher and Jackson play together. Our sons. Okay, so NBA. The NBA is man. Shit, becomes so political. I don't, you know, I don't even know how it got like this. We're like, you know, it started off with obviously the kneeling stuff, and now Black Lives Matter stuff, and now they're literally walking out to um, show a, pro a protest, you know, um, against. You know this whole thing with Jacob Blake, and uh, you know, I, you know, I honestly don't even know enough about that to comment intelligently on it, other than the fact that that guy has a long, long rap sheet. So whenever somebody has a long, long rap sheet, you know, kind of makes me doubt. But well, well, in this current political and racial climate right now, too, look, there you could put a camera on this office for eight hours a day, and you could show fifteen seconds of something really bad that happened, and then yeah, essentially make that the narrative for this whole place. Right. You know what I mean? Um, I don't, I'm the same with you. I don't know the background. I don't know the information. All we're being shown is this clip of him being shot. What led to that? I don't know. Um, yeah. So I hate to comment on that, but then you know, the NBA is entertainment, right? These people are paid very, very well to entertain oh, yeah. people. Yeah. I stopped watching when everyone came out with jerseys that didn't have their names on it anymore. Um, you know, Call me a racist for what I'm about ready to say, but you're still willing to take the money from the people who own the teams. Yeah. But you're going to then walk out. I, I don't know. What, what way do you want it? Do you want to be rich and collect your money or do you want to take this political stance? I don't know. I don't understand mm -hmm. how it's become, how it's become, uh, sports has become political in some way. It should just be entertainment. It's like yeah. bodybuilding. You know, we're in the bodybuilding industry. I love bodybuilding. And one of the things I love about bodybuilding is that, you know, they don't, people don't see that kind of stuff. You just see what's the best physique on the stage. And if bodybuilding started being political, I think that was ridiculous too. Yeah, and it shouldn't be. Listen, if you're a high-profile player and you want to take your wealth that you make from the game and your your status and your profile, and you know, 
essentially act politically in that regard, great. But the platform of the NBA, which people are paying to be entertained, and then now you're... you're imagine if you had tickets that game. Yeah, well, no, this time there's no tickets now. But imagine if there was an audience. I mean, I know uh, there's a lot of money on the line uh, in terms of the TV and advertising. Yeah. Imagine if you're an advertiser or you're... I mean, just the whole thing's a clusterfuck. Yeah. Uh, much more, I guess... Less serious story, <laughs> Bella Thorne, who I didn't, I didn't know who this woman was, but apparently very well known for uh, kids being a Disney actor, Disney star, yeah. which just kind of makes it even more like kind of disturbing if you think about that. So she starts this OnlyFans <laughs> page um, and makes $2 million in less than a week, a million dollars a day the first day. Mm-hmm. And it's because all these uh, dudes want to see their Disney star naked, which is kind of like, and she weird. posted no nude photos, yeah, no nude photos. She kind of like faked everybody out, yeah. like kind of like uh, what's it called, punked? Yeah, she yeah. punked everybody. Now, will she? Will, what, so one thing that this has done, no doubt about it, because this is all over the news everywhere right now uh, that this woman made this kind of money, this girl made this kind of money. How many other girls now are going to be think about doing this? I mean, we're talking about it in the meeting, and some of the girls in the meeting are like, well, no, because you have people, who, younger people, who now say that think that that's a viable career option. Yeah. Look at how many people are in our gym with cameras. A lot. Yeah. A lot. A lot of the girls bring their cameras in and have them on. on uh, so if you got stands. a camera for that, you yeah. probably got a camera for something. Yeah. I mean, if you can make that kind of money, if, if a girl who's in good shape uh, and pretty can make, you know, a few thousand dollars a week extra, I mean, it's a serious money. Yeah. And, you know, like we talked about too, now what you're seeing is this kind of transition where it's, it's not even all sexual. It's just people are using that OnlyFans platform to monetize stuff they normally would post for free. It's, I think people think like, hey, I might see something more. Yeah. Well, hell, I'll, I'll yeah, go she got a lot of followers, 23 million, 23.7 million followers. So, I mean, that's definitely, so what happened with her is she obviously has this huge following, gets tons and tons of comments and likes. Uh, Wasn't probably monetizing. Yeah, it. posts up a link as her link and uh, people went crazy and and went to see, like, I wouldn't pay anything to see anything with her. No. Um, but, uh, but apparently a lot of people would, and a lot of people are making money doing it. So how creepy are those people that they want to see this Disney this, girl? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm like, saying. It's very creepy. That's perfect. That's honestly like some pedo shit. Yeah, they like, wanted that. That's, they're all a bunch of Epstein's out there. Millions of them. Um, so it's a, it's, Jesus. A, it's a very, uh, it's a very weird thing. Hopefully it doesn't like degrade society too much where all the young girls are, are doing this. Uh, yeah, I hope, that know, just becomes the norm. That's the norm. Yeah. So check out my uh, Facebook where you can find that only fans only, only eight bucks a month. I'll show you my titties. I mean, listen, someone wants to see me naked and they want to pay for it. <laughs> like, I got some bills to pay. So. Yeah, there you there go. You know. So That's uh, what you want to see. So anyway, guys, we're going to go to commercial break. And right now, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Let me remind everybody, this is a question and answer show. Johnny's throwing up some questions now. But if we don't get to uh, some questions uh, during this early part of the show, don't worry. We have your questions stored up. And we'll be sure to ask them to Mel or uh, answer them ourselves after. It's a unique time in the world right now. You might've let your diet go. Getting to the gym probably is pretty difficult or for maybe for some of you guys, impossible. When I started thinking about doing another readiness trials, I figured people probably right now have real life issues. 
like they're depressed or their finances, you know, lost a job, maybe even lost a loved one. So that's probably not the right time to do a transformation contest, right? Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. I remember the moment when that all went through my head and I was like, wait, hell no, this is the best moment for a distraction, for a goal, for a focus that isn't the news. I mean, the news is crazy. It's a great way to refocus your mind on something that isn't negative, like the riots, defunding the police, viruses, Kanye West for president. I have decided in 2020 to run for president. If you ask me a goal and a journey, plus being part of a community that are all going after the same thing is exactly what you need right now. We've done seven readiness trials now, and it's gotten bigger and better every time. We can't stop now, we're going even bigger. Last time we gave away $75,000 in cash and prizes, and our grand prize winner, Michael Sparks, won $50,000. This time we are truly going bigger, $100,000. That's right, 100 grand, and it's not even the biggest change. The biggest change was you spoke and we listened. And we're now gonna have 15 cash winners with the top five people winning $10,000. And for the first time ever, we're gonna have free coaching to help you make the most dramatic change. We even enlisted the help of some of our celebrity coaches and judges, Jesse Bowen, Adam Shear, and Martin Ford. It sucks to say, but if the money and the goals aren't enough, think about your health. We're learning a lot about COVID and there's a tremendous amount of confusion and even misinformation out there. But one thing we know for sure is that people who are in better physical shape do much better if they catch it. Having a body mass index of 30 or higher actually increases a person's risk of developing a severe case of COVID-19 by 27%. And a body mass index of 40 or higher doubles the person's risk. That's what the Harvard doctors say. You can either enter by buying one of the Redcon 1 readiness stacks, or if you're already loaded up on Redcon 1 subs, you can buy a ticket to enter the contest for $75. Tickets will go on sale August 15th. When you buy either the stack or the tickets, you'll receive an email exactly explaining how you're gonna enter and how to submit the pictures. Don't worry, we won't show your pictures to anybody unless you're a finalist for the money. Before submissions are due August 24th through the 31st. You'll have that rolling week to decide when you wanna start and then you're gonna have 12 weeks from that point forward to finish the contest. Remember, this is a transformation challenge, not a physique or bodybuilding competition. The best and most dramatic change will be rewarded. Look. 2020 hasn't gotten off to a good start. I'd like to challenge you to hit the restart button with Redcon 1 and change your life forever. All right, welcome back to the Readiness Report. I'm very happy to have on my good friend of many years, uh, the managing partner, a managing partner of Core Medical, former uh, president of the Hells Angel chapter in Chicago, and also one hell of a good guy, and he has a great story to tell. Hey, Mal. Guys, Eric, Aaron, what's happening, fellas? Not much, man. Pleasure, pleasure to have you on, Mel. I wanted to, I wanted to have you on for a few reasons, and I posted in the in the post I made today on social media. I talked about um, the fact that you know in life there's always uh, a second chance. There's always a potential for a second chance, and no matter how down and out you are, that uh, doesn't mean that you should ever think poorly of yourself or give up or think that there's no chance to to, to come back. And, and you have a great story uh, of what what life, how life has changed for you so dramatically. Yeah. And you know that yourself is very well, me and you going back many, many years. And, um, <clears throat> you know, something, I, something that I always say now, and I've said it for quite some time, you know, your your current situation is never your final destination, you know. So I think it's very important for people that to go by that a little bit, you know, what, what's happening today, you know, we're going through some craziness 2020 as you were just, you guys were just talking about. And, um, 
you know, nothing is final, especially when we're in control of everything. You know, you can sit back and sing the blues and and, and do all that stuff. But, you know, you got to make the best of your situations, you know. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. And uh, I think I think that that's very important to remember, right? In life, nothing is static. Nothing is going to stay the same. Everything comes and goes, starts and ends. Yeah. And, uh, if people stay positive, you know, and look for opportunities, look for ways to improve uh, and uh, and see that there's a chance to be a different person or, or focus their life in a different direction, it's always possible. But I wanted to start, because that's more towards the end of <laughs> the end yeah. of the interview. Yeah. We'll go into that. But I, before we go any further, I wanted to uh, talk about how me and you met. Like, what's our, what's our history? And, and, you know, my memory is a little bit like Swiss cheese these days. So how, how, how do you remember me and you meeting initially? Oh, boy, we're going to go back to, I think, 2011, Aaron, I believe. And uh, you were working for RX Muscle for Dave Palumbo. And then I came aboard and <clears throat> I was actually there when you met Derry, you know, at, at the Chicago Junior National. I think you guys had previously talked a little bit before that, but the meetup from what, from what I could remember, so you're saying your memory's like Swiss cheese. Add, add another, how many years I am older than you. <laughs> but, um, I think that's kind of where, where we all started our journey together, huh? And in, in the, back then in the RX muscle days, me, you, Johnny Styles, who I know is, uh, behind the camera producing all this. So, um, yeah, that video they're showing now, I think that was 11 or 12, right, brother? Yeah. Johnny says this one's from 12. 12 yeah i remember because i flew i'm tan because i flew home from florida just to go to uh the chicago pro i think it was maybe the first one uh, of yeah. tim gardeners that we were at together so um <clears throat> we got a lot a lot of history together we go back a long way me and you aaron yeah yeah you met i met Darielle at, at uh, uh junior nationals and uh you definitely were there for that and you had when, when did you get out of prison the last last time what, what, when was that 2008 2008. So I had heard of Mel uh, right from before then because you were in you were in Dave's one of Dave's articles. You were featured, right? An MD. Because so I started working with Dave in 2008 or 2000. Yeah, in 2008 when he was still with MD. And, yeah. Uh, and I remember the article. It was it was like a whole like a, a feature article, right? Yeah, it was called Helen Mac that him and John Romano did um, of my journey. You know of uh, you know my whole entire story of in the former leader of the Hells Angels and into the prison sentences and into home. And then, you know, how bodybuilding kept me focused. And uh, I came home and started the bodybuilding journey again, you know. Yeah, and so uh, I mentioned this in my, in my post as well. When you came out, you know, there was a lot of talk about Mel Chansey, the pro bodybuilder, because there's that famous picture. Johnny, you have the picture of, of him and Jay? Uh, I don't know, Johnny will pull it up, but we yeah. like Jay together and you are, you look as big or bigger than Jay. And so people are like, whoa, <laughs> come out of prison to be Mr. Olympia. You remember all that? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, actually the, the stress of it all and the pressure on my body was a little bit too much because I'm going to date myself. So I'm going to go back to the days when we were using gear and it was, yeah, there's the picture and it was, you know, testosterone and D ball. Right. You know, so that was the only thing that meet, you know, us guys trained with and everything. So now I come home and I decided I'm going to start doing some shows and try to shoot for that IFBB pro card. Well, the minute my body got on contest prep, you know, drugs, uh, it did not like it. <laughs> my body did not want to do all that. I did not like the prep. And every time I prep for a show, as you know, Aaron, I got sick. Yeah. So 
I think that was the Lord telling me, like, this is not the direction you should be in. So, um, I, you know, I always trained. You know, I always loved to train since I've been 15 years old. The fellow showed me how to train, and that's how I got into the motorcycle crew. And I love to train old school. And, of course, as you know, Aaron, because we've been to a lot of restaurants together, I love to eat. Yes. I mean, that's the picture I was talking about. Yeah, that's the picture. Yeah, I was 293 pounds at my heaviest, you know, and um, – so I love to train. I love to eat. My body just did not like what it took to have to get up on that stage. You were working with Chad Nichols, too. So it's not like you're working with uh, some guy just getting into it. Like you're working with the best. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the time, I remember also, you know, it was, I think the not like to eat was a the liking to eat was a big deal, too, because, I mean, you were really not used to because he was starving you. you. You know, you were like you were enjoying you were not enjoying life when, when no. you were working with him. No, that prep was brutal. Everybody in the house was miserable. I'm like, like, hey, if I'm miserable, so are you guys around me. Nobody nobody could have no food in the house. It was like I was back in prison, really. And uh, my adrenal system did not like it. I got sick that way. I mean, Chad was like, wow, Mel, I never seen anybody. The minute that we start the contest prep, all that gear, changing the diet around, it just my body did not want to do it. So I won the Illinois in 09. And um, that that was it for me. You know, I tried doing uh, the Masters Nationals in 2011. I got very sick, um, and uh, that that's when that's when I knew that it was enough. That was an adventure for me. You know, as far as the competing part of the bodybuilding, as you said in the post, you know, I definitely got into the business side and took that to another level. You know, yeah. But before we talk, start with any of that, let's go back to teenage Mel, how do, how do you get, so I'd heard this before, obviously, but you got from, from lifting weights, that's how you got introduced to the guys and, and being part of that crew, huh? Yeah. So the same, so when I was 15, I bought a, a $10 membership. They gave you a key, you turned the door, you know, the key, uh, you went into the gym on your own little gym, garage gym. And, uh, <clears throat> I met a couple dudes in the gym and, uh, you know, they were all jacked up, tatted up, long hair, ponytails, jeans, construction boots, you know, bikers weren't tra- good for training legs back in them days, <laughs> but they were gigantic. And I was like, wow. And these guys showed me how to train old school, you know, deadlifts from the floor, T-bar rows, everything that, you know, it takes to be a successful bodybuilder. You know, I could never use nothing for a pin, you know, no pin selectorized stuff. Um, <clears throat> so them guys right there were members of a motorcycle club called the Hell's Henchmen. And, uh, so I started hanging around with them guys and, you know, um, I got kicked out of high school when I was 16 and, um, I, I went to work very shortly after that. I spent a couple, couple months in my family's pool. Loving Why'd you get yeah, kicked out? Um, I got kicked out. I got into a fight. It was, I was, you know, we were only, I was only in school a month or so. I got into a fight in the first, first month of my freshman year, me and another guy, Got into a fight with some guys. We threw a few guys through the library windows, smashed the glass. So we, you know, we were getting kicked out. Well, when I went into the principal's office, my mother was in there, and there, and you know how tight me and my family always were, and my sister, my Italian mother. So my mom was crying in the principal's office. I walked in. The guy was being very derogatory towards my mother. You know, you did, you should have, you know, schooled him better. You should have raised your son better, blah, blah, blah. She was crying. So I jumped over the desk, socked him in the nose, broke his nose. (laughs) (laughs) I took off out of the school running because I knew the security guys were cops and stuff. I ran through the neighborhood. took me 40 minutes to get home. And is when I got home, the police were waiting for me. So being 
young, my mom and dad had to, uh, yeah, there's my mom there, God rest her soul, and um, had to, um, she signed me out of school. They got fined. They paid the hospital bills, whatever it costs for everything. And uh, my mom was like, listen, it's obvious you don't like school. I'm not going to bring you to another school district an hour away. <clears throat> you know, I'm just signing you out. I said, good, mom. I'm done with the school days. And like I said, I lounged in the pool. I was like, this is insane. I'm working on my tan. Everybody knows I like that. <laughs> and then a couple of months later, she came home with some construction boots and uh, she said, you're going to work. And my uncle had a concrete company and I went to work pouring concrete with my uncle. And that started my working career into the concrete and stuff. So <clears throat> at 17, 18 years old, when everybody was on the school bus still, you know, I was, I had a Harley already and I had an IROC, a Z28 IROC. If you guys, I don't know if you remember them old cars, them old cool cars back in the day. And, uh, you know, I was making 18 bucks an hour and that was in the late eighties, you know? So, um, so I was making money and, uh, that's how I was able to get into the, to the lifestyle because I bought the motorcycle, I had the car, the guys were schooling me. I was still training with them. And then they brought me down to the clubhouse and introduced me to the fellows, you know? So because you had a motorcycle, that was kind of like the inroads. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they were, they were schooling me, you know, they were showing me the ways and I was pouring concrete with their crew too, because these guys were, were, were all three guys were pouring concrete and, uh, you know, I just followed right in suit. I started getting tattoos. Um, I was training, you know, I love that. You know, we always trained and uh, and then at nighttime we went out and, uh, and and hit the bars and stuff, you know, and, you know, and you're supposed to be 21 to get into the motorcycle clubs because obviously you got to be in bars and stuff. But <clears throat> I looked a little older back then. You know, if you guys follow my social media, you see pictures of me with my daughter that I that I had just turning 17 and I already had the, the beard and the goatee and, you know, everybody was telling me, man, you're going to age horrible. You look older now, you know. <laughs> So, um, so that started, that's where I got introduced to the, to the motorcycle lifestyle in the gym, you know, the gym and the motorcycle lifestyle went hand in hand with me. So, uh, is it true that you're not a fan of motorcycles anymore? Um, not that I'm not a fan of them. I haven't been on a motorcycle since 2000 and I think the beginning of 2003, I took a picture on one and stuff like that. That was my old chopper there. Um, no, I don't. I don't say I'm not a fan of it, Eric. But I, I don't ride anymore, and I I think is because for me is, you know, I always say I I can't dip my toe into the pool, and that pool for me is that whole lifestyle. You know, the motorcycle, the one percenter lifestyle, the strippers, the, the 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 fast money, everything that I did, the harem of women that I had. You know, um, so I just. Kind of when I got home from prison, you know, the, the the second time after the Rico thing, it just was I had to lay everything down. You know, I connected with the Lord, of course, and, uh, you know, um, had had my faith got very strong. And I just decided, you know, I just felt it in me like I I didn't want to do anything that I did before. And, and, and it hasn't been hard for me. It's weird because, you know, it, it, people say man, you're so different these days, you know, it, how hard is it to do that? And it hasn't been, it's just like, it's like a, an alcoholic, I would say, you know what I mean? He's not going to go take a little sip of Jack Daniels and be like, mm, that tastes good. Cause he's going to be, you know, chugging the bottles, both hands. That's me in that world. I can't go back to anything of it. I feel like, because I struggle with that, you know? So that's kind of what keeps me focused and, and going, you know? The bike, the bikes were the gateway. So it's, yeah, you take that out of the equation and yeah, it's, it's funny just because at the Tampa pro a couple of weeks ago, I, 
I seen Dave Petit, Dave Batista, and we're friends, and we were talking, and he's like, "No, man, I just got a bike after ten years of not having one. You know, I got my buddies in the garage. Man, what's the odds of me, you, me, and you taking a ride down the highway one day?" And I said, "Man, Dave, not happening." He goes, "How come? I said, Nothing personal." I said, "I just." Don't get on them motorcycles, you know, because <clears throat> back in the days, man, it was crazy. You know, guys were getting shot off motorcycles, you know, and the war was crazy, obviously, as I think a lot of people that know me know the story of the of the, the crazy war that you see on ganglands and it became, you know, the topic of that. Um, so I always think of everything like there. I never wiped out on a motorcycle, you guys. I've never laid one down ever in all the years I've rode. And uh I don't know if I have this aura or omen, what you call it, that I'm going to get on one and I'd fall in the rocks or something these days <laughs> break a hip at my old age or something. Yeah. So you, mentioned, so, you mentioned the war and it has been covered, but can you give us a outline of what, what you were doing then? Like, yeah. Honestly, so, not what you're doing, Mel, but also how your mental state was during that. Because it was not like, I mean, you were literally at war. I mean, you're at all, at all moments you had danger around you. Yeah. So my days were, you know, looking at back at them now, I'm like, geez, how did I do that? You couldn't give me millions of dollars. But when I was young, I was 23 when when we were in the height of that. I was the president. And, uh, you know, we, we were so outnumbered in the, you know, the Illinois region from the outlaws um, that, you know, we really had to be on our toes with, with everything. You know, we had a young I had a very young crew. I was the youngest by far, but I had a young crew. We all trained. We were all hitting the bags. This was before MMA. So we were all limber and loose and, you know, cause we were fighting all the time, whether it was with motorcycle clubs or we were just in them crazy Chicago South side bars where people were fighting constantly getting stabbed. And we were just, you know, people would shoot pull right over. So <clears throat> the hectic days, you know, um, uh, I always trained. It's a funny story. I always trained every day, but I had to have a team with me. When I went to the gym, because them the other team knew, man, that I was into training, and that's where I was going to be at this at this Gold's gym that was big popular in my neighborhood. So I had a team that you know sat around a security team that made sure when I was training, no bad guys came through the door to get me. Um, when I took girls out on dates, or you know, we I wanted to have a little private time with a girl at a restaurant, I had the team that was either at the next table or. You know, if it was cool, you know, at my table, if, you know, uh, if I wanted a private time, they'd go to the next one. But um, the days were hectic because, you know, we were the war was crazy and it was nonstop. It wasn't, you know, something happened this year and then nothing, nothing until next year. It was constantly, you know, I got the tombstones on my arms right here. The, the brothers that got killed in the war, some that are never coming home from prison, vice versa with the other crew, you know, so. It's um, it, it, it got so crazy that, you know, the third largest bomb in the United States was set off at our clubhouse. You know, first was Oklahoma Trade Center, New York City, the tower, you know, the, the New York City towers back in the day. Um, and then the, the, the 100 pounds of C4 that they put in front of the clubhouse. So, you know, um, it went from fighting, fist fighting, ball peen hammers, baseball bats, th you know, things that. You know, when I tell the story, everybody's like, guy, ah, you tell like that's all normal. But that was a normal part of the motorcycle world, the one percenter world, you know. But then all of a sudden the shooting started. And then when them got too slow, the bombing started. And, you know, and that's when the government came in. Janet Reno at the time, the attorney general, they put a full court press on both sides, you know. Hence, everybody got Rico later in life, you know. What, Mel, what were they? What was I mean, 
I guess two questions. Were you growing up, obviously you told a story about high school and everything. Do you think that you were just a naturally violent guy? And then also during this war with the, with the two sides, what were you competing for exactly? What was, if somebody were to have won, what would they have won? Um, the first question, no, I wasn't a naturally violent guy. I mean, everybody that knew me. Not at all now. You're not at all. Not at all. Not everybody that knew me from the grade school and high school was like, man, you know, I always had that good heart, man. And I always took care of my friends and always wanted to have love and peace. And, you know, but I did join that crew. And when I did join it, I fell in love with it. And, you know, me, I'm a guy that gives 100% of everything I do, you know. So once I got in and seen what was happening, I fit right in you know, 19 years old and I'm, you know, 220 pounds and, uh, you know, running the gamut with the fellas and they're showing me the lifestyle and I'm loving it. Hence why at 23, I ended up becoming the leader because, you know, I had them blinders on. I was so focused and everything on it. And um, the war goes back between the Hells Angels and the Outlaws from 1969, the year I was born, actually. So, it's like the Hatfield and McCoys, but when in that environment, in that world, you know, everybody's shooting for the top, for the big dog. And it really doesn't people people think, ah, it's the drug control, it's the it's the guns, it's whatever. Everybody's has their own gimmick. Everybody's in that lifestyle has a drug connect, has a gun connect. Everybody, it's it's the underworld, it's the one percenter lifestyle. You, we're not competing for that. It's really just the name the territory, and who's going to be the biggest dog on the block, meaning in the state, you know? And um, so that's really what that was all about. And then kind of dovetailing into that, so a show like Sons of Anarchy, how how close is like is that type of storyline, that behavior to what you had to experience in real life? Um, you know, definitely tell them. That's probably all they see, right? Is a yeah. So, you know, television a little bit puts some things a little bit out there. They got to have some good drama for TV, but. Yeah, I'd be played by Brad Pitt normally. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> but my life was like that. I mean, I had 24-hour federal surveillance at the end. I mean, it, we used to laugh because I used to have to get into a vehicle. I would go. We had this parking garage where I'd go into, and I we'd lose the tail in the parking garage. I'd jump in a trunk of somebody's vehicle or the back of an enclosed pickup truck. And I get bounced all over until, you know, that, that we got clear of the feds for me to participate and do some things because, you know, they were watching me 24 seven at the, at the height of that war because of what was going on. So, um, you know, the federal surveillance, always having to watch your back from the other guys. Listen, I was very flamboyant in that day. I was out constantly, Aaron's been to Chicago. I, I was downtown in the nightclubs downtown where, where the nightclubs were because, you, of course, I loved the chicks and I wanted to be part of that lifestyle with my patch on. And then I was in the shitty sides of the neighborhood in the biker bars where, you know, everybody was gorilla up and stuff. So I was out every night. I actually used to take, you know, like a, a, a Friday or a Saturday night to rest. And I would be out Sunday through the rest of the week on top of my travels around the country, you know, being the leader and going to other chapters and stuff like that. And on top of, I had four homes, you know, I had four spots with four girls that I was in relationships with eight years at the end, eight, six, four, and two. 
So I had them all scattered around the suburbs of, of Chicago that I had to juggle them too. So, you know, looking back at it now, I'm like, geez, you, for 10 million bucks, I couldn't do it. I'd be stressed out, but it's the lifestyle I lived. It worked for me. I was making a gang of money. You know, I didn't have to do anything. Once I was done training for the day, my whole concentration was what we were going to do, where we were going to go and waiting for our pagers, you know, I'm really dating ourselves, waiting for our pagers to go off to see if the bad guys were around, you know, and uh, there's a real pictures, Pee Wee and the crew. So, you know, we had some hitters, you know, and we stayed tight with each other. We all lived around each other and we did everything together. We hung out every night together. We family, you know, family stuff, Christmases, holidays, we were together. So when, you know, one of us got killed when we started, you know, losing brothers to the, to the, to the war that were getting killed, you know, we took that very seriously. And and that's what was able to allow us to stand up and, and make a full court press when we were outnumbered five, six to one in, in, in the Illinois Chicago region, you know. Other, other chapters, you mentioned other chapters. How close were you with other chapters around the country? And what was your relationship like? Was it a business relationship or friendship? Friendship. I mean, I was very close, you know, to 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 a, a lot of the chapters. I traveled a lot. You know, I used to spend a lot of time in New York City. I spent a lot of time in San Jose and California, you know, down in Kentucky. You know, of course, you know, the Chicago, we, South Bend is really close. Rockford, Illinois was really close, you know, a couple hours each way. So, you know, I was the young guy, man. And uh, we had, you know, the crew that was in the middle of the hornet's nest, as everybody liked to say. There was no worse area for that Hell's Angel and Outlaw beef than in that sh- that surrounding areas of Chicago. We were, it was it. It was happening there. You know, we the murders were happening, the shootings on the motorcycles, the bombing started. It just, uh, <clears throat> I couldn't imagine how much more crazier it could have got hadn't the federal government stepped in and, and, and decided to say enough's enough. And that's when they started the indictments and everything like that. And something that they had to do looking back at it, I'm like, geez, you know, that we, that, that writing was on the wall, right? We knew that was coming and their team got indicted first, I believe in like 96 or something. And, uh, you know, I used to tell the guys like, listen, don't chuckle because these guys are getting indicted and stuff like that. Like we're next. What do you think they like us? Because our patch looks different than theirs or we're next. They're just got to do one at a time here. And uh, and that's what happened. You know, that's what came next. So um, it was, uh, it was nonstop for me. You know, my phones never quit quit ringing. I was traveling constantly. Um, You know, slept a little bit at nighttime. I'd nap in the afternoon or something like that because I needed to be out every night and on the scene, we needed to be on the scene. Not only were we fighting the war, but we had to be seen everywhere because you know how you just can't be hiding out at the house or just not around. We were out constantly. You know, when I first started coming around the club, <clears throat> when I was pouring concrete, I used to have to be on the job site at at six thirty in the morning. And when I was a prospect and you know, you know, earning membership in the club, them them guys would get me home at six. I'd have enough time to. Put some water on my face and, you know, and I didn't do any drugs, you know, then I didn't smoke weed. I didn't do no drugs. I was on the natch. I was taking some, some ephedrine pills back then, you guys, you know, just to stay awake and some coffee to go to work all day. And then to maybe get, get home, get a gym workout in real quick, maybe get off my feet for, you know, two hours. And then my phone would be ringing. Hey, 
prospect, we need you, man. We're going out. And, you know, it was uh, strenuous, you know, hence why I didn't stick in pouring concrete for too long of the game because, you know, they showed me how to make money in the, in the, in the underworld and I just couldn't have a full-time job once I got it. Something interesting though is that you would, people wouldn't, they're hearing the story. If you're hearing it for the first time, you'd be surprised to hear that Mel never really did any hard drugs. You never had any issues with drugs. Like I would imagine probably a large majority of those guys uh, at least experimented regularly or whatever you want to use drugs. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The territory and you made a decision or maybe why? Why didn't you ever do you know harder drugs? Well, when I was sixteen, you know, I was I was bit by the bodybuilding bug young, so I loved that, you know, and uh, I loved to train. I was always eating, taking protein, so I never wanted to take anything that was going to hurt my muscle gains, of course. <clears throat> so when I was sixteen, I tried a little cocaine with the fellas, you know, I snorted a little line and. I was out behind my mother's and father's garage with my heart doing 200 and not liking it. I mean, that was, that was, I can remember today. I had my hands over my head, like, ah, I can't catch my breath. I can't catch my breath. So that right there totally turned me off on that feeling right there. I've never did it again. I did that one year. experience as a kid can change your whole life, your whole trajectory of your life. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because, you know, when I uh, later and I had I had a bad septum from all the fighting and stuff, I had the sinus surgery done. And to, so the, the doctor says to me, Mel, I, I know your story. I don't want to be biased. He goes, but did you snort cocaine for 30 years? I said, no, doc. I said, I tried it one time and stopped. He goes, man, your septum's so bad. I said, yeah, right. I've been punched in my nose a thousand times and all the fights and stuff like that. I go, but, you know, I sold enough cocaine to fill your office up. <laughs> I got it that way you know and which probably made me very successful in what i did because you know the old saying you don't get high in your own supply i didn't do i wouldn't even smoke weed back with the guys in the day because I, I, you know i smoked i smoked a little weed when i was younger and it made me tired i wanted to eat a pizza and go to bed it ain't like now you got your sativas in because you could go all day long so but i drank you know aaron as you know and you heard the stories <clears throat> you know i could drink man i could you know be on the gear training and stuff and go out at nighttime and and kill fifths of Jack Daniels with the fellows. One thing that I build up a tolerance for is I was able to, to, to drink some alcohol back then, you know? Um, I see a picture of Mike Matarazzo, so I have to ask. I know that you were, were very, very close with Mike um, the whole, you know, from the beginning and uh, until, unfortunately, he, he passed away. And uh, I'm just curious about your relationship, how you guys met. And uh, I mean, he was obviously friends with you when you were actively involved. Uh, with, yes. With, yeah. Yeah, so me and Mike met through Ed Connors, the famous Ed Connors, the owner of Gold's Gym, Ed Connors, Pete Krimkowski. So when the Olympia was in, in Chicago in 96, as you guys know, it traveled back in them days. <clears throat> it was in Chicago. I went to watch the show. I'd seen Ed Connors. He came up, introduced himself to me, told me who he was. He said, I'd love to fly you down to Venice. I'm doing a calendar for Gold's Gym. I would love to have you in the calendar with your patch and everything, you know. And I was, you know, already 270 pounds and I was very young. And I said, yeah, no problem, man. I'd love to come down and check your gym out. Well, lo and behold, Mike Matarazzo lived in one of Ed's houses right there in Venice Beach. And um, <clears throat> me and Mike got introduced to each other. His his, his uh, charismatic ways and his vibration hooked up with mine, man. And I just we just fell in love with each other from day one. We just spent hours in Ed's office talking. Mike's a street guy back from the, you know, from the Boston area back in the day. And, um, you know, uh, used to be a fighter and stuff. Mike collected some money back in the day. He worked at a strip club. He collected some money for the local mobsters. So we had a lot of stuff to talk about. And uh, 
man, we became brothers and, uh, and we never parted ways since that day. I stayed with him for an extra like 10 days at his house where he'd stayed, you know, lived at Ed's house and um, flew back home. And shortly after that, I went to prison for the first time and Mike would write me letters. I would call him on the phone and he used to say, geez, he called me Road. That was my nickname. You know, and he'd say, God, Road, what's that noise back there? I said, that's the jungle I'm in, man. They're slamming dominoes and and so all the inmates are restless, you know, and he's like, I don't know how you do it. I said, well, I don't have a choice, brother. I'm here. <laughs> and, uh, and he just was my brother. He's the one who introduced me to Jay. He's the one who introduced me to the industry. He's the one who, who really got me going. I remember me, Steve Weinberger and Jim Manny laugh now because I went and visited Mike at a night at a, a champion show in New York me and Chuck Zito and we come rolling in with our patch on and everybody's like, man, who are these dudes and stuff? And man, you got a memory like an elephant, so does Steve. So we laugh about them old stories today, but um, never left each other's side. You know, even when he was sick, I was, you know, constantly checking him. I'm dear friends with his mother, with his sisters. And, and it's just, uh, Mike was a genuine guy. You guys just a good guy. You know? Yeah. Uh, he was the first pro bodybuilder that I ever um, met in real life. Wow. He, uh, he did a, sem a seminar, which is funny because like this thing does not even a possibility for guys these days, unfortunately. This is, but a revenue stream, a big revenue stream for guys at that yeah. time in the 90s was the seminars. And oh, so yeah. um, I, the seminar I saw the, the following year, this is at the uh, Louisiana State, NPC Louisiana State. Um, they had, um, the following year had Nasser. Nasser, both those guys had at least 200 people go to their seminar paying 20 bucks a head. Yeah. The promoter would, would give all the money to the guys. So like, Mike walked away with probably, I would imagine, somewhere in the three, four grand range in cash for doing yeah. an appearance. Um, and then I don't know how it worked out for the guest posing. Maybe that was the payment for the guest posing, but uh, it was great. And that's one of the reasons I fell in love with Bioland because he was so personable, um, yeah. so friendly, very outgoing, very helpful. Uh, yeah. I stayed after and talked to him for a few minutes. And I realized uh, even then as a teenager that uh, this is in 1997, so I was 17 or 18, 17. Um, so I, uh, when I went and I left, I thought, man, there's no other place that I'd be able to meet my, a professional athlete that I admire. There's no other sport or nothing. Like you can't do it in basketball. You can't be like, Oh, I, I like LeBron. I, I can't wait to meet him. I want to meet him next, next game. It's never going to happen. Right. And even if you did meet him, he'd probably be a dick to you. <laughs> right. I'm sure it's, it seems yeah. like. So, so, yeah. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so that's the thing that I, 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 uh, he was definitely the first one you mentioned to, Ed Connors, Ed Connors kind of connects everybody. So it's an interesting thing that Ed, um, not, not as much anymore, although I, he still is connecting, you know, people yeah. He's still out there looking for the next big thing yeah. uh, time. Cause I've known Ed for forever and ever, as long as I've known you and, and we're on great terms. I like Ed very much, but he is something of an enigma um, oh. because he invites all these young men, almost exclusively white, white young men with only yeah. Fred Wheeler. He says he invited and it was a mistake. <laughs> he said, <laughs> So what do you think? What do you think? Like, Ed, I've never heard a bad thing said about Ed, but when he comes up to you wearing your Hell's Angel patch and everything, it says you'd be great in my calendar. Come stay at my house. Was it weird? Well, no, I didn't know him. You know what I mean? I didn't know nothing about him. I knew Gold's Gym in Venice, of course, flipping the magazines back in the day to my two favorite people, Lee Haney and Lee Labrada. Yeah. So I knew the gym, but I didn't know Ed or Pete or none of them guys, you know, so I went out there and, you know, and then got to meet him. And I know Ed, Ed has a great heart, heart of gold, this guy. And he brought up, brought these guys out there, Jay too, from, you know, from Worcester and Mass. And 
<clears throat> you know, um, I know the stigma gets Ed's like, ah, they're like, ah, it brings these guys out here. But, you know, I don't know one story of with Ed trying anything to these guys, anything crazy or nothing like that. I never heard any of the fellows that I personally talked to. You know, Flex lived upstairs in a, in a house while Mike lived downstairs in this big, huge house right on the beach. So, you know, I've heard some rumor stories, but I've never heard anything to where somebody said, hey, this is what happened or he tried to me. So neither. And yeah. If he did, you know that it would have been out there, especially by now. Oh, yeah. my God. By now. Yeah. But I mean, he, he I mean, he had everybody from I mean, literally every person you can think of from I mean, the first place that Lee Priest, who I don't like at all, but Lee Priest uh, came yeah. to America because Ed invited him, paid for him to uh, fly in, paid for his food, you know, place to stay. Yeah. Aaron, a lot of people probably don't know this, but he's the one who found John Cena. Really? Yeah. 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 John was working at the gym and working out there and, you know, <clears throat> same with uh, Jim Helwig, Ultimate Warrior, and Steve Borden, Sting. These guys were all competing and trying to be pro bodybuilders, and they just didn't have that extra crazy mass, you know, especially in the 90s to compete with them rock stars, right? So <clears throat> he pushed them all over to Vince McMahon. He's been, he's been friends with McMahon for many, many, many years, and uh, he pushed them that way. Just as he was, you know, trying to do to me, you know, with, with the wrestling and stuff, you know, he's like, man, Road, you you belong over here. You belong over here. But back then, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to work. You think I wanted to go on tour with some wrestling stuff? I, I was making enough money to where I, I was content just doing what I was doing. So um, so he founded a lot of people and he started a lot of careers for people, man, people. um. Uh, should be humbled and grateful for Ed Connors in their life. You know? He did a lot of good. So how you're saying it, he did. I mean, it's amazing how many good deeds Ed Connors has done because he didn't get anything from that. It's not like yeah. there's no financial benefit. He's not like nobody uh, paid him back. No, he's not like uh, like Sean right. back in the day. Like, I get you a contract. You got to give me twenty percent. He's yeah. literally saying, "I'll do it for free. I know this guy who can help you. You shouldn't be doing this. You should be doing this." Yes. Um, you make money. Good for you. No, he never asked anything back, which is a very, very unique. I mean, who else does that in this world? You know, right? Amen. Good guy. Very, very, very good guy. You. Oh no, I was just saying. Yeah. So on that topic of wrestling, like we all know, you're you're you know good friends with Hulk Hogan. So I'm just kind of curious how that relationship ever came to be. So <clears throat> I met Terry um, through Chuck Zito back in the days. They were they were doing a show called Santa with Muscle. One of Terry's when he was doing the movies a little bit, you know. And um, Chuck uh, Zito was doing some. Uh, How long ago was this, Mel? What's that? How long ago was this? Oh, 1994. Oh, wow, wow. So I met Terry. Uh, we went to a match. He seen me and he was like, man, brother, you know, you should be in the ring. And <laughs> Zito kind of laughed and said, ah, you're not getting him to work, man. He's, <laughs> he's kind of content in doing what he was doing. And another one that me and him just stayed in touch. We just hit it off. We laughed. We went out a few nights that, you know, I was I was in uh, Vegas and we went out after the matches a few nights. He had a few nights extra We some cocktails and, and, you know, we just really hit it off, man. I got to know him as Terry, you know, because it was funny because, you know, he's 67, I'm 51. So I, whenever I want to get him going, I tell, man, I used to play with your stretch dolls back in the day. The rubber ones. <laughs> he laughs and gives me a shot in the arm. And <clears throat> so, um. You know, of course, who wasn't, who didn't like the Babe Ruth the wrestling? I grew up watching him and Macho and stuff. And then to become friends with all them guys and to, they'd call me up. Hey, man, where are you at? And, and where are you at? What state are you in? We're here. We're wrestling. Oh, man, I'm going to jump on a flight because I could do that whenever I wanted to. I'll jump on a flight and 
go hang out and see these guys at the match and <clears throat> run around with them crazy afterwards, you know, and uh, Terry tells, tells a lot of people, I introduced him to a lot of different strip clubs in his life. <laughs> I was the king of all them back in the day, as you know, Aaron, you know, so, oh, yeah. um, uh, so our relationship was great. It would just was tight. And then, you know, we lost contact with each other through my prison years. He was going through his personal stuff with the, you know, the, the when his son got in the accident, Nick, his, you know, his ex, you know, sued him and the whole gawker and the whole N word thing. I mean, tear, I would remember sitting in prison, watching everything he was going through and thinking he's in prison himself, you know? And uh, so when I moved to Florida in 2014, I get a message on Twitter and it's him. And he goes, Hey, I don't think this is really you because the Twitter account, he goes, but if it is, he said, I'd like to connect with you. Tell me something only me and you know. So I told him an old story. He sent me his number and He's in Clearwater. I'm here in Northport. I'm about an hour and 30 minutes from him. And then we just resumed right where we left off. And uh, Terry's a genuine, good dude. He's a humble guy. Um, you know, come to my first show. I mean, just so supportive of me and what I'm doing these days. And, you know, he tells the stories. He goes, Mel's a different person these days. Back in them days, man, he had a, a real different look in his eye, you know. So he's, uh, you know, he's family to me, you know. Yeah. It's funny. My only uh, story, uh, Hulk story, Terry story, was uh, I was on a uh, international flight. We we're on the same flight back to Florida, um, in uh, in the first class section, and uh, he was in front of me and my old business partner uh, on the way back from I think FIBO or something. Something he had been for BPI. I don't remember where it was. Arnold. The Arnold. Arnold. Uh, Arnold Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so we're on the plane, and uh, and so. I don't remember if it was me or my partner. It was like, ah, oh, we gotta say say something to him. We gotta say, and so I, uh, when he got up to use the bathroom, I said, "Hey, I just want to say hi. You know, uh, I know the owner of BPI, Derek. I was like, I know Derek, and whatever. There was some conversation, and uh, and he's like, oh, cool, and he left. And then we used the bathroom, came back, and stood by us and talked to us for like ten minutes. And I'm like, wow, that was super cool. And he went and sat yeah. down. I was like, that was really cool that he did that. And then. He'd get up and come back over every, you know, like come bullshit and think of something else to say or whatever. It's a long flight. So he ends up coming by like three or four times and we're going back through customs. He can't just turn around talking. I'm like, should I ask him for his number or is that too weird? And so we didn't, we didn't end up doing it. Um, but I, I was like, uh, like you too, kind of like going to ask a dude, Hey, what's your number? <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't end up doing it, but he was so friendly and so nice. Yeah. And, and uh, when obviously he's a, like we talked about uh, LeBron, right. And he would have been an asshole. He was Terry was the exact opposite of that uh, in my experience. Still the same. It, when when we're out there by Hammer, he comes by me, or we're traveling together. He definitely stops and talks to everybody so much to where I finally have to say, you know, because it's like a dropping a Dorito on the ground and the ants coming to him. If he starts oh, yeah. a pitcher somewhere, that opens up the floodgates. So I'll let it go on for, you know, a little bit. And I'll say, guys, listen, I'm going to take one group picture, please. And please, I hope that with whose phone this is, you would email or share it with these people because we have to get going. We have to get running. But he's uh, no, no ego about him. He's, he's, he's a solid guy, a family man, loves his family. And, um, you know, he knew he's, he knew he got a blessing, you know, come on. He's, he, he says, I'm a beach bum. I started out on the beach playing in a band on the beach and then I, I, I caught a blessing and ran around the whole entire world. And I'm retired with my feet on the same beach. Yeah, they're showing the clip from yeah, when we were for, uh, for uh, 
uh, Monday uh, Nitro there. Yeah, it's a it, that's a very impressive quality to keep your your head on right with all yeah. that. He's arguably one of the most famous people in the world. You know, yeah, he's got like that top ten most famous people alive today. For yeah. sure, recognizable for yeah, sure because yeah. people's mom and dad, grandparents, everybody everybody knows who he everybody, is. Yeah, everybody yeah. knows. Literally, everybody knows him. So. You know, to be that uh, friendly. I know you've you've been around Cutler before, Mel. When at like the Arnold or the Olympia, to walk through the Arnold Expo with like for Kai or any of those guys were at that the very very peak. To walk, yeah. walk through many many expos with Kai, and it's and it's very annoying. <laughs> it's like oh yeah yeah. You know, if he were to stop for a moment to take one picture, all oh, of yeah. a sudden there's a, lo- a long line, and me and Mel are walk. I mean, uh, Jay are walking out of Olympia Expo or the meet, meet the Olympians uh, last a few years ago. And I'm like, dude, I can't wait for you anymore, man. Like I can't, I'm not going to like, I don't have the patience to, to wait an hour to go eat with you. I'm just going to like meet you there or whatever. Cause I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't handle it. And so what I, the reason I'm even bringing that up is because basically the Hulk is like that all day, every day, yeah. wherever he goes, Doesn't no matter where you go. Yeah. Like the, like the rock, like the rock who's yeah. arguably the one, the most famous person, right? Kidding exactly. Me. You know, like Jay and Kai and them guys, <clears throat> Walking through the airport for them, unless there's some bodybuilding fans, you know, the 60-year-old, the 70-year-old person just going to say, wow, there's a big dude. You know, they don't know him like that. But when you're, you know, when you're when you're Terry or DJ and stuff like that, that face, I mean, you know, I mean, there's 85-year-old women and walkers, you know, yelling, hey, Hawk. You know, they call him Hawk. Hey, Hawk. And they got, you know, the oxygen hanging and stuff. I mean, everybody knows him wherever we go. So, when a lot of times when I'm with him and you know we're somewhere and he's like, man, I gotta stop for some gas. I'm like, I got it, bro. Please stay in the truck. I'll get out. <laughs> I want to go eat. I'm like you, and I'm like, I want to go get some sushi, and I don't want to wait two more hours. You know, I want to go. But um, both both grac- gracious guys, Dwayne himself, Terry himself. You know, these guys at the top of their game there, and to see him still being like this, Terry at 67, rocks much younger. You know, 40. I think he's eight or nine right now. But, you know, as, as, as beat up as Terry is and as much as he has abused that body, he just takes the time for the people, you know. And, uh, you know, and he'll say when we're sitting down eating a meal or with the wives and stuff and people will come over because, you know, some people don't have the best etiquette. And they'll say, hey, Hulk, can we get a picture? And he'll say, when I stand up, please allow me to finish my dinner with my with my family and stuff. And when I stand up, it's on. And then when he stands up, it's crazy, you know, and I'll do the I'll do the honors and take the pictures for him for 10, 15 minutes. And then I'll finally say, guys, man, come on, group picture. We got to cut it. We got to go. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah, so, so people are definitely there are people that are very unreasonable out there. I, I've seen that before where it's like, yeah. seriously, like he's the guy's eating. You're going to like try to get him to stand up. Man, there's been times where I had to stand up and say to the person, come here, come here let me have a word with you. <laughs> and then get in their air and say, why the F? Are you acting like that, man? The guy's being humble. He's sitting here eating with his family here, and he's telling you stuff, and you want to call him a dick? Come on, man. You know? So there's been a few. Yeah, the old Mel. Old Mel's coming back. Yeah, yeah. The old bro had to come out a few times because of all around yeah. all yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. So, one thing you mentioned, Mel, and I have to go to it because me and you have been to quite a few strip clubs together back in the day. Oh, yeah. The patch and, and the girls. So how much is the, how much difference does it make uh, having that patch when you go out, like, is that, are there a lot of girls since you're, you're certainly like that, you're a bad boy for sure with the patch. Yeah. How much yeah. did you see that? Yeah. I seen it a lot. I seen guys yeah. come to the club that, you know, couldn't, couldn't pick up a chick in a woman's prison. Right. And, uh, 
<laughs> and they put the patch on and they get into that lifestyle and stuff. And that intrigues a lot of people, you know, and it, it really intrigues them, you know, like back in the day. And I, as you see the old pictures of me, I was jacked, bigger, jacked up, lean, a lean at that, at that big weight. You know, I was well-kept. I had the goatee, but it was, you know, I didn't have the long hair, the crazy lookingness or none. So it was relatively easy for me to pick up, you know, a lot of beautiful women. Um, but I used to watch the very straight ones. I would be somewhere and somebody introduced me at a party or at a backyard barbecue. And you would see the the nurses and the career women and they'd want to come over and start talking to me. And then you'd see the starry eyedness in them. And I'm like, man, they just like that whole bad image, not knowing what comes with it, though. So they just you know what I mean? Um, so that was kind of funny to see, you know, we're used to the bar women and the strippers, you know, the, the, them girls and stuff like that. You know, we all hung together and we, you know, similar lifestyles, the fast lifestyles, but to see the career women and the way they used to be with me. And I was so humbled and honest back then, you guys, I would tell them like, man, this is, listen, I'm, I'm honored. I'm definitely going to take you out. Definitely going to try hanging out with you for some time, but you can't be one of them in the circle because it's too much. I, you have kids. I don't want to bring all this stuff into your life. I came with a lot of baggage, you know? Oh, yeah. So, one of the circle. So, so you mentioned the four uh, girls at the time. Did, did those girls know about each other or you have to keep it all a secret? So the main one, the one I was with for, you know, when, when I went to prison the first time when it ended eight years, her name was Nancy. She knew nothing about Joanne. Uh, Tanda and Kendall. She didn't know. At least you remember their names. Yeah. I do. I do. I spent a lot of years with them. <laughs> Joanne, Tanda, and Kendall all knew about each other and they knew about Nancy. Nancy was my queen bee, so to say, back in the day. I thought if, if things would have went right, I was going to ride out the lifestyle with her, you know? And uh, so she, I kept everything, you know, away from her. She didn't come around the club. I had her in a suburb south of the city, you know, 40 minutes south of the city. I didn't bring my motorcycles to that house. I didn't bring nothing. All the neighbors thought I was just some big tattooed up bodybuilding dude that traveled around until one of the days when they, when the feds raided my house out there and I was home and they shut the blocks off and ATF and DEA and FBI and organized crime was got everybody out of their homes. Now, Nancy had a daughter at the time that was just, you know, four or five years old they used to play with the kids around the neighborhood and they were like, what is going on? They had no idea I was the leader of the Hells Angels because, you know, back then I didn't have time for barbecues and sitting in their yard. They seen me in passing and I kept everything away from that house. You know, I sheltered that out there and I did everything else, you know, that I needed to do. Really, I kept all the girls away. I didn't I didn't intermix that because I was still the type of dude when I was out running, I was still getting chicks. I was, <laughs> you know. I just was, you know, a womanizer back then. So, um, and then I didn't need them girls on the back of my motorcycles or anything because it was live back then. You know, guys were getting shot off their motorcycles on on, on, on both sides. And it was, a, it was a crazy war. So when I was out on the motorcycle, it was the fellows, you know, it was the club. We didn't intermingle the girls like that. That was our, that was our little side thing, you know. Well, at least back then there was no social media, no cell phones oh my really. God, can you imagine? So there's really no proof whatever the fuck you were doing. So that's like, you know. Back in 60s, 70s, people had multiple families across the country because yeah. didn't nobody would, how could you connect people? So didn't you know. know. Imagine that Instagram. Imagine doing that now, Mel. Yeah. I would have been, I would have got life. I mean, everybody would have been, you can't do the things that we did back in that day now. 
back in the day when we would go into a lot of, you know, the stories I've told on other podcasts, we'd go into a bar and we knew everybody had a job to do. The, the phone lines got cut outside, you know, not a lot of people had a cell phone back in the late eighties and early nineties. If they did, it was the brick, you know, and that cost you a thousand bucks a, a, a month to have or whatever. So we cut the phone lines, no calls going in front door, back door gets covered. The the crew goes in, do the beatings. Certain guys had the guns, whatever that situation called for. We were ready. We, we took care of it. Could you imagine now having to be like, who's got their cell phone out low recording you? Who's got, it was crazy. We didn't have to even bother with the patrons back in the day because we told everybody, sit down. We're not here for you. We could take care of it, do the beatings we needed to do, get up and out of that bar. And we were gone. So, you know, and back then nobody could press charges. When you're in a 1% motorcycle club, you can't press charges. Even if you know who it is, you can't do it. And the normal people ain't going to do it. I can ro roll in with no ski mask, airing in my nose, everybody seeing me, 290 pounds. <laughs> that was Mel and the crew. But when the cops came in, like, who? I, I don't, we didn't get a good look. Them were the old days. Now you'd have everybody sending the videos out. We'd be on oh, yeah. Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. It just, it'd be crazy, right? Oh, yeah. It'd be, it'd be uh, yeah. Too, uh, you know, honestly, you probably even have to worry about your own guys because. People make bad decisions. They put it out on social media, some piece of information, or yeah. wasted, and they video doing something that it, you know. Yeah, you can. That stuff's forever, and uh, and you can't count on people to always make the right decision. That's what you know. For my little my little guys, my three sons, you know, I I'm gonna have to really teach them because things that I did, and I didn't do anything quite as crazy as you, but I you know I did plenty of things that I wouldn't want to be on video now. Uh, yeah, yeah. And there's a real tendency. You, the people want to get likes. They want to build up a following. They can do stupid shit to to think that it's cool when you're 16 years old. That turns out being you know the end of your life. If you, uh, I mean, I wouldn't have. I see you know when I'm scrolling Instagram walls, I see some motorcycle dudes that are in one percent clubs and stuff, and they have Instagram and Facebook and stuff, and they're putting pictures on, and they got their arms around each other and stuff like that. That was definitely would have not happened back in our day. I mean. Me, I was a different story. You know, I had the same haircut, except, you know, I had the longness in the back. I was as big as I was. You know, I was the poster child. There was no hiding me. So I just went with the whole, let's be flamboyant. But nobody wanted to get their picture out there. We didn't want the other teams to see exactly what we look like. And, you know, we wanted to keep a little mystique about it. So there was been no social media. And I know a lot of old timers that are still in the clubs, you know, in the motorcycle clubs these days, the 1% crews, and they're totally against it. They won't do it. They won't have social media. They don't want pose for pictures with anybody, but you know, that's far and few in between. Cause in this world, I mean, everybody's doing it. So everybody's doing it. So um, towards the end of your story, well, there's two times you went to prison for, for long periods of time. Um, and obviously the second time really changed when you came out, you're a changed man. Can you tell us a little bit about the two experiences and, and how they were, yeah. down, how they changed you? So when I got, when I went away the first time, you know, um, I, I, I really started thinking like, you know, how my life was, my daughter that you guys are showing the picture of right now was very young, 11, 12 years old. You know, I was really had to come from a real close knit family. And I was like, man, you know, this is, uh, this life I'm living is, is, is definitely not, getting me in any likes with the federal government and the bad guys, you know? So when I came home, I had a, a three-year thing called non-association. I couldn't 
be around the fellas. I couldn't talk to them. I couldn't take phone calls. If I walked into a grocery store and any Hells Angels were in their shop and I'm the one who had to leave or they'd violate me. So it was very strict for me. <clears throat> and in that time, that's when I really started to think about life. You know, when I was in prison, I was praying. I come from a very strict Catholic family. I went to catechism, CCD. I always knew the Lord. I was the biggest hypocrite because I used to pray, ask for forgiveness for all the bad things that I did. As soon as I was done with them, that night I'd come home, Lord, please forgive me for that one, you know, please, Lord. And then the next day I'd go and do the, the same old thing. So when I came home the first time, I, I, I asked the Lord, I said, okay, Lord, please don't let me be a hypocrite. I don't want to stop my communication with you. I want to pray at night before I go to bed. And that's what I used to do just one time before I go to bed. So I'd pray every night when I came home, you know. Not too many nights I missed. Maybe I got drunk one night and missed the night. I'm sure I did. But besides that, you guys, I was pretty close with my relationship with the Lord, asking him to guide me, guide me, guide me. And then in 2003, when I came off my non-association, <clears throat> the club was right back into the same nonsense that it was with the outlaws. So when I went away, after the Rico, we, we sat down and we made a truce in 1997 to stop all the nonsense and, and just nobody was winning besides the feds and the graves, right? The, the, the cemeteries. So we made a truce. Well, as I was away, that truce started falling apart. And then I came home and now I have, you know, some of the outlaw memberships calling me up saying, and I'm like, guys, I can't even talk to you. Like, you got to deal with the president that's out there now. So things started getting a little bit hectic again. And that's when I was like, listen, I'm not going to come home and get off my non-association. I'm going to go right back into this thing here. And now this time I'm getting 100 years. I'm not getting any blessings, you know. So I had left the club in, in, in 2003. I quit on my own. And in the, in the motorcycle clubs, you can quit. A lot of people say, wow, you can quit. Yeah, it's not the mob. It's not, you know, one way in, one way out. You can quit. The, 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 the ideal is if you don't, if you don't want to be there, nobody wants to keep you there. You know, it's like. It's like Eric and you. If Eric doesn't want to run the company for you and 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 be your your VP and your your president for you, and, and you force him to stay there, Aaron, you know he's not going to give you one hundred percent, right? And that's that's how the motorcycle world goes. So I I quit the club. I said this is just enough. I got to concentrate on my life. My daughter, my dad was sick. You know, my parents were older. So I'm like, I gotta I gotta concentrate on me. Then came. The Rico. Then our doors got kicked in. The four of us got hit with the racketeering. And that was from all the stuff that went down in the 90s. So I was already home. I was already partnered in a nightclub, running the nightclub for me and my partners down there, you know, five, six nights a week. Our nightclubs there and you were there were very successful. I was just directing all my concentration on that. And then the Rico came and, you know, here it comes. And, and that was the cleansing that I say the Lord had to do to me for all the things that I did. It sucked at first when I was sitting in there and I'm like, God, I'm, 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 I'm going to be pleading guilty to stuff I did in the, the, the early and middle 90s because my crime spree stopped in 1997 when I went away to state prison the first time I came home at the non-association in, in 2001 and everything stopped. So that's where I said, this is my cleansing. And in that day, in 2004, I got down on my knees in this cold eight by eight cell. I mean, I was in a small cell, eight by 10 cell by myself, looking at a huge RICO indictment, knowing with my criminal history, if I go to trial and lose, I'm, I'm at a 25 year mandatory minimum at 85%, the feds make you do. 
And that's when I reached out to the Lord and said, I can't do this no more. I remember the prayer. I said, I cannot do it. I'm crashing the car. And I said, I'm putting it in neutral. Take the wheel because I, I related everything to drive. And, you know, I kept crashing the vehicle. And um, that's when I got my relationship really strong. And I, I, I spent that time in there worshiping him, being in that relationship with him, going to church, fellowshipping with the fellows in there that, you know, were, were working on their relationship with the Lord. And, you know, and I was in a maximum security federal prison with walls, you know, with big concrete walls. There was no fences and no, no camps or nothing. So I was with some real intimidating and in, in, intense guys. But a lot of these guys found their walk with the Lord from being in there. And listen, there's some people that went home and I'm sure took the Bible and don't listen to it to this day. And the relationship maybe fell off, but I never wanted to be that hypocrite. And that was my strong prayer. Please, Lord, don't let me be this dude. I want to stay in my journey with you. I want you to guide me. I want to look towards for you towards everything, you know, and that's what I did, you guys. I I, I came home and uh, I focused on my family. I went back to the nightclubs uh, uh, in 2009. I started the bodybuilding journey again. And uh, that's where I, you know, really became, you know, friends with uh, Jim Mannion and, and, and Steve Weinberger and really got in close with them. And, and one thing led to another. And like you said, Aaron, earlier, here I am. And you know, running the industry with these guys hand in hand and having fun. And I'm a promoter and, you know, just uh, 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 loving the journey. But I never, ever stopped my relationship with the Lord. It, it, blossomed in, it blossomed into such an awesome relationship that for me, you guys, people ask me like, you know, Mel, you're, you're constantly in communication with them. I have to be. I can't be one of them guys where I get up in the morning and I read my Jesus calling book, I go into some scripture in the Bible and I pray. And then some people pray before they go to bed. That could work for a lot of people. For me, it can't because in between them hours that I'm up, I'm dealing with promoters. I'm dealing with chairman. I'm dealing with core medical. I have a lot of interactions in my days, as you two gentlemen know from businesses. And sometimes we don't deal with the best people. So if I don't stay grounded and I don't stop and say, okay, Lord, please, be with me on this one. This is not going good. Please don't let, you know, road come out. I want to be, I want, you need to guide me through this. And uh, you guys, he's, he's brought me through some situations where I didn't know if I was going to be back in the penitentiary or not. So that is where I got the strength from him to, to do where I'm at. And that's why my relationship with the Lord is, is really got so strong because I know my fight, as I say to everybody. You know, and if you know your fight, then you know what the devil's throwing at you. Like the drug thing, Aaron, we talk about. He's not going to, you can put me in a room in front of 900 kilos of cocaine and methamphetamines and heroin or whatever. No big deal. But you put me in a violent situation or you stick me in some strip clubs. There's my fight, right? I got to know where the battle is. And that's why I choose not to go into the arenas because I stay battled up. And what I mean by that is, through my prayer and through the relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, Mel, one other uh, very important factor, I think, in keeping you stable is your wife, right? Oh, Many yeah. yeah. Her, right? I mean, yeah. very, very important stabilizing factor, I'm sure. Um, yeah. You guys moved down to Florida. You're not too far from us, from Chicago. Mm -hmm. and originally, your, your mom was there with you. Mm -hmm. you passed, and uh, yeah. you guys were together all the time. So this the coronavirus, for a lot of people, 
that haven't been able to go to work. They're with their wives all the time. And they're like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, and there's all these problems now, but you're actually with uh, Minnie Mel all the time, right? All the time. Yeah. It was, it was funny because in the 11 years we've been together, I've always traveled from, 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 you know, we got together in 09. I was always traveling already on the bodybuilding circuit, you know, with you at RX and then everything with Jim. And so this year I'm home, I'm not gone. 30 weekends a year and I'm home and I'm, thank God we got the pool in the yard. We don't have the beach ain't too far from us, but yeah. So little Mel is my best friend. She's, she understands me. She understood me from the beginning. Um, you know, even when I didn't have all the, the, the piss and vinegar out of me and I was still going downtown and hitting the strip clubs in Chicago because all my friends owned them. And, you know, Aaron, you've been, in, you know, you've seen how I am. I ever since I've been with Mel, I, 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 I was the dude who could go into strip clubs. I wasn't going in there to, to try to pick up chicks. I was just going in there, hanging out, and my friends owned them and laughing and joking and having some drinks. But, you know, it came to the point where I said, okay, enough's enough. I can't do this. You know, we got married in 2011. I don't even want to put that stigma out there. So, you know, that's what guided me into that choice. But, yeah, she's um, she's my best friend. People laugh all the time, Aaron, because as men, I know most men control their finances, their bank accounts, they, they're they on top of stuff, you know, as I'm, I'm sure I know you are, Aaron, and Eric, I'm sure you probably are, and I know Big Steve is, and they laugh at me because I don't know where we bank. <laughs> I don't know anything. And it's true, 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 true bodybuilder at heart. Yeah, true yeah. bodybuilder at heart. When we bought Second Chance Gym, you know, I remember Phil Heath was here for a week with his wife, and we were going to go after hours one night, and I got there, and I'm like, damn, man. I, I called Mel and she didn't answer. I go, you know, call your wife and, and talk to her. I, I don't, I need the code to get in. And he goes, what? I go, yeah, I don't know the code to this place. She runs the whole story, you know, like, so, and that's how, that's what works for us. She runs everything, you know, and uh, the house, the bills, you know, she's the partner on the show. She works with, you know, Tim Gardner and Joe Pascula. So basically I just show up and do my, do me. And that worked for me because you know, she calls me the shiny quarter. I'm all over the place. You know, I'm, you know, you see me at the shows. I'm with you guys. I'm at the stage. I'm here. I couldn't know. It's funny because me and Jim Manuel laugh because, you know, everybody wants to be a judge. Everybody wants to be a chairman. Everybody wants to be something in the industry, you know? And I remember telling him, Jim, I'll, I'll fly to, to Afghanistan for you. I said, but I can't be a judge and I can't be the chairman because I don't have the patience to sit at them tables. I don't have the patience to do that. Anything that seems like work to me, I'm out. Even these older years, <laughs> if it ain't fun and it seems like work, I can't do it. So um, it's, it's good. Now, it's really good that you know that about yourself because yeah. a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't be honest with themselves about it and say, oh, it'd be really great to be the chairman. But then the chairman, they go, what the fuck? I, I don't want to even want to do this. Um, so it's good because most people are not honest with themselves. Most people aren't that self-aware either. Yeah, a lot of work, a lot of work. So um, so yeah, Mel is, uh, she's my anchor. She's my best friend. She's the one that pulls me down when the, when pulls me back to, 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 to my square, as I say, when I'm dealing with some bad situations or I get some people on the phone that don't know how to, act nice these days and she's the one you know i'm home and i do everything from from here from the office here in the pool to my office you know and uh she keeps me uh she definitely keeps me grounded she's uh she's she's uh she's the anchor of this house like i say mel i don't know how much you can tell us about uh a project that you're working on you have a future project that's very exciting that i think people would like to hear about but i don't know what you're able to say or not say or if you could just hint to it what how much can you talk about that 
So um, for many years, for probably the last 10, 12 years, um, I, people have been coming at me with, you know, <clears throat> doing a book, doing my life story, reality shows. I mean, you guys, it's crazy. Some A big company, a big TV station wanted to do a reality show with me where I was ghost hunting. I mean, <laughs> you think it was just mind blowing, right? And I was always like, nah, nah, nothing seemed to intrigue me. I don't want to write a book. I'm going on a book signing tour and I got to be around like, like once again, too much work for me. So <clears throat> about a year and a half ago, me and Dwayne, me and The Rock, uh, had, a, had a conversation about uh, um, a company calling me up and wanting to do a reality show with me. And I talked to Terry about it. I talked to Hulk about it. He was like, listen, man, re reach out to Dwayne. And I, at first I said, ah, Terry, you know, I don't know. I don't, you know, me and you are 30 plus year friends. I've only known Dwayne a couple of years. I don't want to bring my burdens to anybody. He's like, no, no, man, you guys got a good relationship. So I reached out to him. I told him what was happening. And he was like, Mel, I didn't even know that you were even interested in something like that. And I said, well, I'm really not, but it keeps coming at me. And he was like, listen, I would love to be able to tell your story with my team with seven buck productions. And I said, wow, Dwayne, I'm that I'm, I'm humbled that you even think of, of, of my story like that. So um, lo and behold, you know, it's, it's been about a year and a half and we've been working on some very cool things with the team um, to do a, 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 a TV series and uh, just just recently, just in the last couple months of COVID out and Hollywood being shut down and nothing's going on in 2020, um, the team himself, you know, uh, his his former brother-in-law, Hiram Garcia, who's 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 Dwayne's Danny Garcia's brother, who's Dwayne's ex-wife. And um, they're all still best of friends, man. It's crazy. It's 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 an awesome venture with them because they're best of friends. They have the company, the business. And um so they they gave me a call and we started talking about some things and it looks it looks like we're going to do a docu series because that's right now that's what's really jamming you know I, you know as we just seen I didn't watch it yet but the, the Tiger King I think it was that docu series became the most popular one in the country that thing took off and um, you know people not going to the movie theaters now or watching a a series on FX, you know, a six season series and stuff, which that, that was the first thing we were going to do. Dwayne said, let's do this documentary with you with this docu-series. So that is what's getting worked on right now, you guys. And um, boy, let me tell you, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of fact search and there's just a lot of putting people together. There's a lot of stuff that goes on Hollywood. Now I know why you hear about them filming a movie. We don't see it for a couple of years because there's a lot to it. So, so that's where we're at now. We're, we're all putting our heads together and um, with, with seven buck and then their companies and they're looking for the, the perfect documentary guy right now that would be perfect for this. And uh, you know, Aaron, I, I, I've been putting some names down and, you know, I definitely have to have have you in it because we do go way back and you, you know, they want people that seen that knew, you know, I'm going to go. They're going to go way back with the people that knew me from the road days and all the craziness up into there's like five different chapters of, of this in my life. You know, the, the 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 rise, the rain, the redemption, it's all broken down like that, you know. Um, so, uh a lot of people are going to be getting interviewed and stuff like that. And I'd be honored to have you in there because we have a good story together, you know? And um, so 
when Dwayne called me up and told me about the docu-series, I didn't know much about him, of course. I didn't know much about any of this. But, um, you know, he said to me, funny, he goes, did you watch Tiger King? And I said, no, nah, we didn't, bro. We just opted not to do it. I heard about it and I heard what he does in there. And he goes, yeah, I just watched it because of what I heard. It was bananas. He goes, but it's the number one docu-series out. If that guy was out of prison right now, he'd be right. Oh, crazy. And I said, yeah, I get you. And he goes, we got the golden goose in front of us. You, we got the old pictures. We got the people that tell the stories. We got the ATF agents. We, you know, from, we got everybody in them different sections of my life, you know, from, from himself and Terry and from Jim Mannion and Steve and the Jays and the, the, and then the wrestling, the big shows and, you know, all them guys that I've walked through life there. And then all the old guys and, you know, Mel's and yourself and, there's so many cool cast of characters, you know, like the funny thing is Dwayne says to me one night on the phone, we're talking and he goes, Hey Mel, he goes, we, we came up to a conclusion here over at the, the team, you know? And I go, what's that? He goes, you're like the Forrest Gump of life. And at first you guys, I had to stop for a second. I'm like, Forrest Gump, is that a compliment or is that kind of weird? And he goes, and he goes, yeah, you got quiet. He goes, and I mean this by it. You've walked through every type of life. You have friends that are pastors. You have friends that are gay. You have friends that are priests. You have friends that are maniacs. You have us from the wrestling. You have the bodybuilding. He goes, you've walked through every different type of life and have the friends to talk about it. And I was like, okay, cool, man. I get the Forrest Gump thing because my daughter, who is now 34, so now my grandbabies, my daughter nicknamed me Peter Pan back in the day. And I used to laugh and she's like, yeah, dad. You don't want to work. You're still a child. You always have a crew of lost boys around you. Yeah. <laughs> she goes, you always got the so-called clubhouse. She goes, you always got the, the the crew. She goes, you're like Peter Pan. You never want to grow up. And I thought that was kind of funny. So um, very cool. I'm very excited about it. I know with Seven Buck, it's going to be amazing. You know, who who better than them? The, the blessing that I couldn't ask for anybody better than them to put that story together, you know? You're ready. You're ready. You're prepared to do all that work. You're, I'm, you're prepared. I'm prepared, bro. I, I have in front of me, I'm at the computer and I have this thing here. And um, so now I'm going uh, on the rise in the rain of me, you know, becoming road and that whole thing and the people, the, the names that I got to put in there. So that's my next, my next uh, work task is I got to go through them five different things that they want to tell the story in that way and put the people down in there, you know? So, um, that's my job now. And I'm a little slow at it. Of course, still, I only got a <laughs> in the rise, but it's, uh, and it's something that they want to move, you know, fluently on here because they don't want to waste 2020. You know, this thing was first going to start out as, as, as a series, you know, and whatever company picked it up, let's just say X FX or, you know, USA or whatever picked it up and they were, it was going to be scripted. They call it the scripted world where somebody was going to play me in the whole nine yards. But since all that's on hold and then Dwayne came up with the idea is what's better right now. We have you in front of us. We got everybody that you walked in life with. Let's do this crazy docu-series because that's what's happening right now. So um, I'm ready, man. I'm excited. When I'm on the long hours on the phone with these guys, it's cool. And uh, I got to tell you, man, you know, Dwayne is just a, a really cool, laid back dude. I mean, he's got a lot on his plate. He cares about the people around him. He's another one that takes care of his team. And uh, he's just really been a very good friend of mine. And, you know, in the 
last four years of us knowing each other, you know, so he, he, it's, I'm really honored and humbled to have him in that team, uh, you know, wanting to tell my story, you guys. Yeah. That's super, super cool. Awesome. Yeah. I would be uh, remiss if I didn't mention uh, our friend Sydney over there at Core Biomedical. Uh, yeah. You've been working at Core, working with uh, Core for a while. Uh, yeah. You want to give him a little shout out before we wrap this thing up? Yeah, three years, three years I've been with Sid and Core Medical, and it's just been an, a great journey. It, it, it's, you know, Aaron, as, as I tell everybody, it's, it's, it's not work for me. It's very easy because here I am traveling around you know, working for Jim and, you know, and, and, and promoting and doing all the stuff I'm in their arena. So it kind of goes hand in hand. People see what I do and they come and talk to me about their hormones. They're all, they're all, they're middle-aged men already in our industry. We got a lot of guys that of course are done taking all the gear. So now they need the hormone replacement hormones through my social media, uh, growing the platform, I get them. So it's very easy. I'm at these bodybuilding shows and I'm, you know, not only am I talking about the events or the bodybuilding stuff, people are coming up to me asking me about core medical. I get them set up. I get them the patient coordinator and the core crew is amazing. You know, when people find out that it's very inexpensive for hormone replacement, you know, people don't know what to think at first. <clears throat> it's so easy. The process is easy. And the team that I have that Sydney gave me for the personal team is just amazing. They make it very easy for me. Yeah, I do the talking on the phone. Somebody will hit me up on Instagram. Of course, I shoot them my number because there's too much to, to, to text. I talk them through it, let them know what it consists of, how their hormones are working, you know, synergistically hand in hand. You know, I give them everything. So when I pass them off to that patient coordinator, He's just dotting the I's and crossing the T's, the Reader Digest version, and they become patients. So um, another blessing for me. It's an, it's another career that's been awesome for me. I can intermixes, intermingles with my bodybuilding and what I do, and uh, I love it. I love helping the patients out and talking to them, and I love when a normal person, not us, take us out of the picture. We've all used hormones and stuff. I love when a banker who's 40-something years old you know, and, and can't perform with his wife and he's getting body fat. He's, you know, he's got, got brain fog. He's tired and stuff. I love to see that guy get his testosterone in place, get the estradiol, estrogen in place and in, in, in the two hormones in their testicles, the FSH and LH for HCG. Man, these guys, you guys, it's just amazing to see how they feel. They get me on the phone and they're like, Mel, they'll FaceTime because they'll have my number and they'll say, man, my wife wants to talk to you. And I'll get on the phone with a lady I never met and She's like, thank you for giving me my husband back. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, he he was always there. He just needed a little help. It wasn't you, you know? And I remember one, one lady's like, yeah, we got a nickname for you around the house, Mel, you know? I said, oh, this ought to be good. And she's like, yeah, we call you the dick doctor. <laughs> so, to get a normal guy that's never taken a show. That's a title you never would have thought you'd get, the dick doctor. Right, the dick doctor, you know? So to take a normal guy like us, we've used hormones. We know what it feels like to be top of the range and, of course, above. And, you know, we've been running crazy on the hormones and stuff. But to get a normal guy or women or, you know, women that never knew nothing like this. And then all of a sudden their hormones are clicking picture perfect and they're losing body fat and gaining muscle and feeling good again. It is uh, it's crazy. I see the old Oz. You got the old Oz pictures up right now, Aaron, up there, you guys. As long as no guy's sending you before and after pictures of his dick working and not working, we're good. That has not happened yet. So, Eric, I'm hoping you're not jinxing me. People are out there uh, in China. Uh, <laughs> he may say so. Yeah. <laughs> Mel, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. 
and uh, I always love hearing your story and hearing uh, such positive things. You know, just like once again to remind everybody watching, you know, no matter where you are today doesn't mean what is it? No, what is the saying? Um, your current situation is not your final destination. That's as it. long as you're willing to, you know, we we kid about me not working, but <clears throat> as long as you're willing to work for it, you know, and in in saying that, you know, because we all say, you know, Mel Mel the Mel don't like to work, but it was a lot of work for me to change things around because as you know, Aaron, when I did come home from the prison sentence, the first and the second one, everything was right there again, back for me for the handing. I could have did right what I was doing before. I could have been right into the cocaine game, right into the methamphetamine game. I could have jumped back on a motorcycle. It was there for me. It, 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 it was work for me to stay out of that environment as much as, you know, not physical work. It was mental work for me to say, man, I can't do that, you know, and sometimes the mental works harder than the physical work, you know, especially when you're so programmed to do things. So the current situation is not your final destination. As long as you're willing to work, like I tell people, it's okay, man. We're all brothers. When we all, you know, me, Aaron, and I'm like, you guys, I, I want to help everybody out. I'll, I'm the first one to talk to everybody. Call me on the phone. I'm talking to everybody. It's okay to to get down on your knee and put your arm down in that ditch because you got a brother that's down there and you're trying to help him up and out. But as I say, man, it's a fine line of you helping him up and out or him pulling you down. Mm -hmm. right. and, and, you know, you got to know your fights and you got to know when to cut. And there's a lot of people in life that I don't have relationships with no more because I can't fight it no more. And I can't give them my arm because they don't want to come out of that ditch and they're going to pull me back down. And if I get pulled down into that ditch, you know, you guys will be seeing me on a motorcycle in the strip clubs. I'll be have a cane these years, you know, I mean, I'm walking but, uh, uh, you know, so, you know, it's always good to help people out, help one another out, but you got to know where you sit in life. And like I said, it's a fine line, man. So, you know, well, thank yeah. you again for being on the show, Mel. I'm sure we'll be talking uh, in the next few days. Anyway, we'll probably so. see you next week too. Yeah, I'll see you next week, right? Will we see you next week? The New York Pro slash in Tampa, yeah. right? Yeah. When, when are you guys getting there? I don't know. Friday. 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 Depends on where the uh, cocaine and strippers are. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all in Tampa. Let's just say that. I am. I am actually going to come down very early Saturday morning. So I have Branch Warren and his wife, Trish, and their little girl, Faith. They're coming in on Thursday. They're going to spend some time. Dennis Wolf's coming in from, from Vegas. So we got a little cast of characters that are going to meet up here and have some fun and enjoy the show. So I'm going to come down. We're going to leave early Saturday morning, get all in there, help Big Steve out to make sure the show is okay because, you know, he's coming down there with, you know, he's using Tim Gardner's crew. So, uh, We'll definitely have some fun there. We'll get some. I got a good sushi spot for us and stuff. You guys are probably staying until Sunday morning. I would think so. Yeah, yeah. probably. So, yeah. So let's uh, let's uh, go out and have a nice meal and stuff. We'll have an after after drink after the show with Branch and, and Dennis and the whole crew, and we'll have some fun. But you guys, always a pleasure. I want to send a big shout out to your guys' team for always keeping me in stock on all the number one, all the red con swag that I have. You know. You know, and um, and uh, and and keeping little Mel in stock with the protein because I said this before, little Mel has a really weird stomach and she can't eat a lot of different meals and stuff. And the only thing she can take is the MREs, Aaron, as I told you, yes. and uh, the MRE light. Yes. You know? So she, she, thank you guys so much for keeping us uh, up, up into all the cool stuff at Redcon. You got an amazing team that always answers the call, and um, 
very blessed, guys. I love you guys, man. Thank you for the show, and God bless everybody. All right, Mel. Thanks, Mel. See you soon. See you soon, guys. See you next week. All right, guys. So that is the end of our midday episode, episode number 15 of the Readiness Re Report. And uh, we got to go back to work now. I know. No, yeah. <laughs> like Get back into the swing of things. Yeah. <sighs> Uh, well, next week we'll be back at our eight o'clock normal time, and we have Dakota Meyer, a Medal okay. of Honor recipient. Yeah, he's on board. Uh, so uh, I talked to him. Uh, he Facetimed me from a fire station uh, a few days ago, telling me uh, that all his guys were excited that he knew uh, Redcon One and that he knew me and stuff. And I was like, "Man, don't these guys know who you are, bro?" Because he's now he's he's. It's funny. He's working at a fire station. He's a firefighter now, um, and because of COVID, all of his speaking engagements and other stuff kind of dried up. And so he figured he would do something. I'll let him tell the story, but do something positive with his time. He obviously doesn't need the, not like firefighters get paid a lot of money. And Dakota has done very well for himself, but he wanted to give back to his community. And decided, That's That's awesome. yeah, it's a really interesting story. Um, it's interesting uh, choice. I think there's very few people out there that financially don't need to do anything, but he cho chose to, choosing to serve again, Yeah, to serve again. And, and I think a lot of guys we've, we've talked, you talked to plenty of them too, that are looking for a purpose. So he's yeah. finding a purpose and helping people and, and literally saving people's lives. So it'd be cool to have him on. Uh, you hear, when you do listen to Dakota Meyer uh, interviews, it's always about the medal of honor and receiving it and everything. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but I'd rather, rather get into, uh, who he is and his opinions on what's going on in the world. He's a very uh, out there kind of dude. So, well, we'll get to the interview. <laughs> Good. All right, guys. Thank you. Until next time.